Some of us became Christian because of a moment standing around a crackling campfire singing Kumbaya when it seemed like God was right there in our midst. And some of us were gripped by God's miraculous presence on the day that we held our newborn for the very first time. And some of us have drifted away from God, but maybe on an early morning fishing trip when the sun's rays grazed the edge of the lake in such a radiant fashion that we were suddenly moved to sing God's praises again, we came back to the faith. Or maybe there was a crisis during a hospital when there was this still small voice that nudged you back into God's mysterious presence because of the power of the community of doctors and nurses and friends and church folk who came around to care. All of these kinds of moments are a bit like what happened to Jacob. Jacob holds a key place in our spiritual genealogy. Jacob was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. And Jacob is the father of Joseph, whose technicolor dream coat made him famous on Broadway. So Jacob has one of these aha moments, just like some of us have experienced. And Jacob's powerful moment comes for him when he is out camping alone under the stars. You may recall that childhood song that some still sing, We Are Climbing Jacob's Ladder, Higher, Higher. Well, it recounts the story of Jacob, not the one we read this morning, but one in a previous chapter in Genesis when Jacob, out under the stars alone, lays his head down on a rock as a pillow and begins to dream. And in his dream, both angels and God begin descending the ladder from heaven to earth. And then God comes and stands beside Jacob and promises to bless him and to travel with him and to make him successful, just like his grandfather Abraham. And Jacob wakes up from that dream and says, wow, God was here, and I didn't even realize it. Ironically, Jacob experiences this beautiful moment of God descending on a ladder just after Jacob has proved himself to be an absolute scoundrel. Jacob cheated his brother Esau out of his inheritance, and he betrayed their father with deceit. He is even named trickster, or some people in the colloquial Hebrew call it go-getter. His name is not a positive one. This is the kind of guy who could pull off insider trading without being detected. It seems like Jacob will walk right up to the edge of what is acceptable in society and then wiggle his way into what he wants without actually crossing the line of breaking the law. One scholar has called Jacob strong on guts and weak on conscience. In fact, his brother Esau was so angry with Jacob that he threatened to kill him, and Jacob had to flee their hometown, fleeing for his life and his safety. You know, when I think of Jacob and Esau 
and their sibling rivalry and their squabbles that threatened to tear Abraham's family of faith apart back there at the very beginning, I also think about my friend and mentor, Elizabeth Jones, who was an elder and a leader in this church for decades. And Elizabeth and her husband raised two boys who were close in age, and she used to tell me that about this time in the summer, when the kids were getting restless and the boys weren't really behaving very well, she would sit her boys down and she would look them in the eye and she would say, if you two boys don't straighten up, we are gonna go on a family vacation. I vividly remember drawing that line in the back seat of our family sedan that my sister and I were not allowed to cross until we arrived at grandma's house. And I also remember getting about a mile away from our home when one of us would shout to our parents, she crossed it. Why is it that the conflicts with the people that we love most dearly have the power to wound us so severely? I think of the young gay man who came out to his parents and was told not to come home for Christmas that year or ever. I think of the doctor that was told by her partners that she was no longer wanted in their medical practice. I think of my brother-in-law who brought my mother a huge bouquet of beautiful flowers the week before he announced to my sister that he was leaving her after 25 years of marriage. We have this enormous capacity to break the hearts of those with whom we are most intimately connected in this journey called life. Jacob was no stranger to this deep pain. Not only was he estranged from his brother and his father, he was also double-crossed twice by his own father-in-law and uncle, Uncle Laban. He spent seven years working for Laban to earn the right to marry Rachel, whom he deeply loved, and at the last minute, Laban substituted her sister Leah in the place of the bride. Laban had to wait seven more years to marry the one he loved named Rachel. And so Jacob comes to this passage that we read this morning, to this second overnight camp out, out underneath the stars alone, as a man who knows what it feels like to be on the receiving end as well as the giving end of manipulation. He arrives at the edge of the river, a very wealthy man who is still deeply afraid of his brother's wrath and revenge. I suspect that Jacob went to sleep that night hoping that God would again appear gently coming down from heaven on a ladder to comfort him, to place his hand upon his shoulder and gently encourage him. But it would not be so. This campout beside still waters will be anything but comforting. Out of the blue comes this mysterious and ominous presence that attacks Jacob with vigor. At first, there are no words, just tossing and turning and wrestling with the sheets. And then comes this incredible pain and torment, and his hip joint begins to throb, keeping him awake. And I wonder, in that moment, if Jacob was wrestling over the guilt he felt, having wronged his brother some 20 years prior. 
or I wonder if he was wrestling with the anger that he felt towards his father-in-law who cheated him, or I wonder if he was wrestling with the fear that he felt as he made this journey home to face his brother, wondering what would happen next. Finally, the tormentor shouts at Jacob, let me go! And Jacob refuses to let go. Jacob holds on more tightly, demanding a blessing from this mysterious presence in the dark. What is your name? Asks the voice in the night. And he says, my name is Jacob. And the divine voice corrects Jacob's self-perception. No longer will you be called Jacob or trickster or go-getter. You will be called Israel one who strives with God. And so Jacob calls this place Peniel, which means the face of God, because there he saw God and lived to tell about him. Sometimes God comes like that, not as a peaceful, comforting presence lowered to us on a ladder, but as a painful moment of truth that reaches into the darkness of our souls and rattles us. Instead of ascending us assurance, God challenges us and invites us to name our own brokenness. An encounter with God you see sometimes feels like a wrestling match. When God invites us to look at ourselves and see our own brokenness and turn to the only one who can bless us. We strive with God and we become a new person with a new name. I bet many of you can recall a time or two in your life when your relationship with God felt more like a wrestling match than a gentle, peaceful presence. I remember when Dave and I had been dating about three years, and, you know, after three years, you kind of feel like you ought to make some kind of decision. Like, maybe we should break up or maybe we should get married, or something. And so we decided to have what we called one of those serious talks. And we met at this little Chinese food place in a nondescript strip mall out on Holmes Road. What I remember about that dinner is that Dave and I both cried into our Kung Pao chicken and crab rangoon. We both said stuff that was hard to say. And I always remember it as the moment when we almost broke up. And I know that for weeks and months and even years after that, I not only didn't ever want to go eat at that place again, I didn't even want to drive down that block on Holmes Road because it made me feel anxious and sick to my stomach to just recall how much we wrestled there and how painful it felt. And we didn't get engaged until about a year later, but I think somehow in the midst of that pain, I surrendered, like Jacob, giving up the illusion that I had control of my life and my relationships and the future that God held for me. Maybe I had to see what Jacob saw, that I was a flawed human person, humbled, by the opportunity to build a life with another flawed human person. I picture that what happened to Jacob 
that night on his way home to see his brother was the same thing that happened to me that night at the Chinese food place that I never wanted to go to again. That God tuned our hearts. You know, if you've ever heard this piano being tuned, and I sometimes hear it when I'm going to and from my office, it sounds nothing like Paul Tucker playing the piano. It sounds horrible. Or maybe you've heard someone tune a guitar or a violin or, God forbid, the whole symphony in utter chaos and ugliness. But once it's tuned, it sounds brand new. Or as the old hymn puts it, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. I suspect every single one of us needs our hearts to be tuned from time to time. Maybe we will seek that, or maybe it will just come like an uninvited presence in the middle of the night. The tuning reconnects us not just with God, but with each other. Our hearts are softened, attuned to love. Amy Butler is the pastor of Riverside Church in New York City. Last spring, Amy preached a sermon on Jesus' command to love your enemies. And in this Loving Your Enemies sermon, she told a story about a guy named Todd Underwood, who's a gun rights advocate. He started the United Gun Group, which is a social marketplace for firearms, where George Zimmerman bought the gun he used to shoot Trayvon Martin. In her sermon, Amy talked about how Todd had recently attended a gathering of folks on opposite sides of the gun debate in this country. And at that meeting, Todd sat down and talked face to face with a mom whose daughter had been murdered at a mall. A few weeks after the sermon passed, Todd sent a tweet to the preacher, to Amy. He asked Amy, do you think of me as your enemy? And she called him up, and they began to talk, and they realized in the midst of that honest conversation that the two of them disagreed on almost everything. She was a preacher, and he wasn't sure if women ought to be preachers. He voted for Trump, and she voted for Clinton. He is against abortion, and she is pro-choice. And in her blog, Amy writes that she finally asked him on the telephone, Todd, if you could sum up the Bible in one sentence, what would it be? And Todd said, You should love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. And she said, Wow, that's exactly what I would say too, Todd. And she says in her blog that in that moment, she felt like the two of them stepped onto a small piece of ground that was shared, where each of them had to move over to make room for the other, and where they understood each other just for a moment in ways that surprised them both. And she said that she was jarred by his humanity, by his personhood. And Todd said, can I come see you next time I'm in New York? And she said, sure. And when he arrived, she invited him to tour with her the ancient Gothic cathedral with its shimmering stained glass overlooking the Hudson River. And standing there in the sanctuary, he said to her, well, what's next? What do you mean, what's next? 
And they agreed that they both loved God, and they both loved family, and they both loved their country. And they realized that nobody is the stereotype that we believe that they are. And they agreed that we have to keep talking, and we have to keep listening. And I suspect that if we had been there that day and we saw Todd and Amy leaving that conversation, we would have noticed that each of them was walking with just a wee bit of a limp. Because the scripture tells us that after wrestling with God, Jacob walked away with a limp. He was filled with wonder and joy because he had seen the face of God and lived, which every Hebrew person knew was absolutely impossible. No one could see God's face and live, but having glimpsed God and therefore his own humanity, Jacob was changed forever, and he could never again shake that moment where he knew the pain of encountering the Holy Other. So Jacob limped. He limped home to the Promised Land to see his brother Esau. And he was so afraid that he sent ahead a peace offering, lots of stuff, animals, then the advance team of the cute children and the beautiful women. And then, only then, he mustered his courage to limp into his brother's presence, bowing down seven times. And Esau ran to greet him. And the two brothers fell down together, weeping and embracing. And Esau welcomed his brother home. And Jacob looked up, and he saw the face of God in the face of his brother. It was the second time he had seen God's face that very day. Will we dare to let our hearts be so tuned?